Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Oh yes, welcome to Downtown, the podcast. It's episode number 252. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Got a couple of talented folks on the program this week. A little bit later on, one of our favorite writers, David Roth of Defector.com, co-host of the Distraction Podcast, a wide-ranging conversation with David. Up first, though, a boy, music legend, singer, songwriter, came up as part of that vibrant Boston music scene in the early 1960s, still out there making great music. He'll be performing uh, here uh, in New England at the Gracie Theater at Husson University, Friday the 24th and at the Rex Theater in Manchester, New Hampshire, on Saturday the 25th. We had a terrific time talking with the talented Tom Rush. Hey, Tom, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, we're looking forward to the show at the Gracie Theater this Friday night, along with uh, Berkeley alum uh, Matt Nicoa. should be a terrific show. Uh, great to be back out performing again. I know your, your 60th anniversary celebration kind of got obscured by... What was going on with COVID? <laughs> yep, yep, it did. I actually put out, uh, I have a T-shirt. I announced my uh, first annual farewell tour um, <laughs> back in 2020. And then I had to put out a revised T-shirt, the pandemic edition with 64 shows crossed off. <laughs> and you managed to, uh, you managed to be ahead of the curve here. You got COVID back in the, pre-vax days i was in a i was an early adapter yes and i do not recommend it uh, it was not fun but i didn't get hospitalized i got off relatively easy it was two weeks of feeling awful but uh, then it was over well glad to hear that yeah i was late to it but i, I was also lucky enough to have the vaccinations and uh, get the good meds the uh, paxlovid so it was a, a fairly Mild case for me, but but still certainly something people need to be aware of. Are you asking people to mask up for your shows? I am doing whatever the venue requires, and I don't haven't heard anything about masks being required um, for the show. But uh, nobody's going to mind if you want to wear one. Right, absolutely. Well, let's talk about uh, music in, in general here. And uh, you came along, I think, at a, a very interesting time in the music biz. My theory is that folk music in many ways saved pop music from itself at a time when uh, things had gone <laughs> from uh, Elvis and some of the uh, early creators to the, the era of the teen idol, if you will. Yeah, yeah. It was it was kind of funny. I, I fell in love with rock and roll in the late 50s when I was a youngster <clears throat> and then it just, the, the whole rock, that whole rock and roll thing was very curious to me because there were all these superstars who were totally different from one another. Pretty soon, pretty soon the industry started saying, okay, well, if this guy's a hit, let's find somebody just like him. But you know, Fats Domino was nothing like the Everly brothers who was nothing like Chuck Berry and on and on, but it only lasted a few years, like maybe mm -hmm. four years and it was gone. And, uh, yeah, as you say, the teen idols took over. What was it about those uh, those traditional folk songs that appealed to you as a young musician? 
Well, I think it was <clears throat> partly that what was what was on the radio was so bad, and uh, and a lot of us just were looking around for some music that we that we actually liked, and came upon this the folk stuff and the and the gold blues guys, and they were real. You know that what was on the radio was was fake, and these people were real, and singing about real things and some really good songs. So we got we got sucked into it. Did you also, as I know a lot of your contemporaries did, uh, take your idea of a work ethic from those blues musicians who uh, yeah, would never they wouldn't retire; they would continue to play and then go out and perform and and make music for as long as they were able to do it. Well, I I love doing shows. The travel has gotten to be a bit uh, onerous these mm. days, but <clears throat> I love the couple of hours I get to spend on stage playing playing songs I love for people. And it, it's so you know there were no shows for a while, and I started doing an actually I started doing an online subscription series called Rockport Sundays. Right, right. Which you know sustained me through the. Uh, through the pandemic, it gave me an, an audience to play for. But I learned that when you tell a joke to a TV camera, <laughs> it doesn't laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's not the same. Well, you, you talk about travel. Well, what's the old saying? You get you don't get paid to play your music for an audience. That's the reward. You get paid for the buses and the hotel rooms. Exactly. Exactly right. I've cut way back from what I, you know, there was one five-year period when I think I had 10 days off, not in a row. I was either recording or promoting or rehearsing or doing shows uh, the rest of the time. These days I do about, I don't know, maybe 60 shows a year. The Gracie Theater, I'm very much looking forward to. We're talking with Tom Rush here on Downtown. He'll be at the Gracie uh, this Friday night. You came up in, in such a vibrant scene, the Boston folk scene of the 1960s, and you know, people talk about the village in New York, but w what was going on there in Boston was uh, had to be pretty exciting at the time and, and really helped birth the whole folk music and singer-songwriter movement. There were, I, In my mind, there were two different scenes. The Cambridge-slash-Boston scene, was was very amateur in the in the positive sense of the term. People were playing music because they loved it, not because they wanted to become professionals. There were all kinds of. There was a uh, typewriter repairman who was a brilliant mandolin player and high harmony singer. He was as good as they get, but he was a typewriter repairman. He didn't want to. He didn't want to go on the road. There was a uh, a banjo playing. <laughs> Psychopharmacologist. It was very popular <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Um, but in New York, <clears throat> my vision of New York is everybody, they wanted all to get matching shirts and go on the road. They were very professionally oriented. You have always had uh, such a great year. Uh, for terrific music that other people have written. Uh, one of the first to record songs by Joni Mitchell, uh, Jackson Brown, James Taylor, is that the, the just the songwriter mentality that you know a good song when you hear it? I'm not sure what's going on, but yeah, I <clears throat> sometimes, well, there, there have been some major hits that I would not have picked. So I'm not infallible by any stretch. 
And there are also songs that I just love that I know better than to try to sing myself because I would, I would wreck them. <laughs> but, you know, when Joni Jackson and James came along, they were just irresistible. The, you know, the songs were just so good. I, it's the, goose, the goosebump thing. If you get goosebumps, it's a good song. When you have been such an influence on other people as well, uh, folks like James, uh, Garth Brooks, who who have cited you and others, and so many of your songs have become just an indelible part of the canon here, Circle Game, and so many more. Obviously, when you're working on them, when you're when you're writing them, you don't think about the legs that they'll have, but it has to be rewarding that people keep going back to that music. Well, it is in, in <laughs> on several levels. <laughs> a band called the Walker Brothers had a hit with uh, my song No Regrets that put my first two kids through college. <laughs> I'm particularly fond of that version. Um, I'm actually going in the studio in a few weeks to work on the work on the next the next album, which I think my, the previous album. I've got to train myself not to say my last album because it could be misconstrued. <laughs> previous album I think was my best work so far but I think that the songs that uh, I've written for this next one are are better so we'll see we'll see what people think what's the, what, just one man's opinion what's the state of music today from your perspective Tom we have so much technology involved in it and uh, like anything else that can be a good tool but can also uh, get in the way of the recording process well it can do it can do I mean when I started out, if you didn't have a record deal, you didn't exist. Mm. It was the record company that got you on the radio and got you written up in the papers and um, got you in the record stores and basically connected you with an audience. And without them, you were invisible. Now, any kid with a laptop can, you know, make make music in, in her bedroom and put it up on the Internet. And most of it's terrible. But some of it's really good, and there are there are bands filling stadiums that I've never heard of because they they haven't been on the radio, they haven't been in the in the papers, and it's entirely an internet thing. The downside to the internet thing, in my mind, is that it basically distributes your music for free. Right. If you know, if for instance, just for instance, if a thousand people listen to one of my songs on Spotify, what do you think I should get? She said, do you think a penny, a penny would be too much? <laughs> Probably to the people at Spotify, yes. <laughs> well, that's that's the pay scale with Spotify. Mm. A thousand, a thousand uh, plays equals a penny. Wow. Which makes it tough to make a living. Absolutely. But I've always, uh, basically, I've always made my living on stage and I can plan to continue doing that as long as I can do it. Well, and isn't that, the, that's really would seem to be the, the best way to, to carve out a long lasting career because relying on sales and uh, airplay and things like that, the, that, that tends to be a lot more fickle than developing loyal fans and continuing to add to that fan base and people that will keep coming out to see your shows. It's true. And the way I look at it, I get paid to have fun. It's a pretty, pretty cool situation. Oh, I wanted to pass along a couple of hellos to uh, Bruce Pratt, uh, 
old uh, old compatriot of yours uh, sits in with us on Wednesday afternoons. He was hoping to to be here and join in the interview today, but he's teaching a class at the University of Maine. But Bruce wanted to send along his regards. Oh, well, say hi for me, yeah. I will absolutely do that. And his brother-in-law, Ted Hammett, wanted to know if uh, if you recall with any fondness the tuna on toast sandwiches that he made for you at Tommy's lunch. <laughs> Oh, how could I forget? (laughs) Glad they made an impression there. Well, Tom, we're looking forward to the show uh, this weekend, Friday night at the Gracie Theater at Husson University. Uh, We think of you as as close to being a Mainer. You're close enough. New Hampshire's so uh, so nearby. We'll we'll give you credit for that. Well, I'm I'm actually living in Southern Maine these days. Well, you are okay. Well, then you're all set. Just right down on the Piscataqua River. Well, that's Um, wonderful. And I send people, uh, by the way, I send people to timerush.com. If you go there and you click on shows, there'll be a drop-down menu that'll give you a link straight to the uh, to this Gracie ticket page. And also you're doing a show uh, in New Hampshire, Manchester, New Hampshire, at the Rex Theater on Saturday night. That's correct. That Excellent. is correct. I'm looking forward to that, too. That's great. Well, Tom, thank you so much for making some time for us today and hope you're out there uh, making music and touring for a long, long time to come. And we look forward to hearing the new album as well. Thanks so much. The legendary Tom Rush with us here on Downtown. We'll take a little break for a word from Cross Insurance and come back with David Roth next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Tom Rush right there here on Downtown, the podcast. Our next guest, a writer for Defector.com, one of the best around. He's the co-host of the Distraction podcast as well with Drew McGarry. Our usual wide-ranging conversation with our friend David Roth here on Downtown. Hey, Rich. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Happy spring. Yeah. We had one day during the weekend that felt like spring, which was nice. I really enjoyed that. Uh, we're now back in the whole uh, New York City springtime thing where it is 41 degrees and extremely cloudy for uh, two straight months. And then the Mets start playing. Yeah, we get the cloudy, and then it's about four weeks of uh, just mud everywhere. And then the next day, uh, after a stretch of that, it'll be 73 degrees and sunny. And you're like, oh, okay, it's time. Yeah, it does seem to happen quick. We know, I know you all have had some berserk snow up there. I'm, just, I'm mostly aware of that from uh, my wife's conversations with her dad. Every day, and there's certain days where it's just like the man just spends an entire day inside uh, looking at YouTube videos about um, like finding things with a metal detector because it is too unpleasant <laughs> to go outside for a number of reasons. He doesn't seem to mind it, although I think you know he stretched that out over the course of a week. 
there's only so many interesting things you can really find with a metal detector. Yeah, no, there's no question about that. But now you got me curious because I, you know, I see those guys out. We have a lot of public parks here in, in, in Bangor, and quite often you'll you'll see people out there. Generally, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to typecast people, but generally older men who are out there doing it, and and they seem very determined. And and I do want to go just watch and ask if they found anything good, gold doubloons or or anything like that. But usually it, it seems to be uh, coins from the Lyndon Johnson administration. Right. I was going to say, it's not necessarily a collectible thing so much as it is uh, things that you could have gotten simply by bringing your cans back to Shaw's. Basically about a, a break-even point economically there. Uh, the stuff that from his videos, the ones – how deep do you want me to get into this? Because I, I oh, oh, spent oh, a lot of time uh, in a small uh, house with the guy. Right. I, 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 want, I want to know. I want some insight into that mindset. Right, so there's a couple big uh, metal detector influencers uh, that Wally is into, um, different, different vibes. There's a very manic British guy who, uh, does his, you know, looking in the UK. And that guy is always, he, I picture him, I've never seen him, but as basically being an elf, uh, like an actual elf <laughs> that would work at like a Keebler facility during the day. And then on the weekends, it's just time to go out there and look for, you know, whatever, finding world war one shell casings or whatever. <laughs> the, the ones that he prefers, are some guys I think are firemen that have very strong Delaware County, Philadelphia accents that go out there with they call themselves the Hoover Boys. And they like produce their stuff a little bit more carefully. And sometimes they do find stuff of historical significance, but mostly it's just a bunch of guys like I imagine all of them are just named Mike. And some of them are firemen and some of them are policemen, but none of them have jobs other than that. And they just sort of go out there and, uh, you know, yuck it up on the weekends and periodically find something. And they're like, get away. I know you didn't just find that, Mike. And he's like, yeah, Mike, I pretty good. I found it with my metal detector. And that's sort of what the whole uh, show is. And you can watch an effectively unlimited number of hours of that. All right. I, I have a plan for tonight. I need to search. <laughs> yeah. Make a note of it. Uh, let's see. Well, maybe, boy, if they got a good enough metal detector, maybe the Mets could find a new closer because that got screwed up. Was that the uh, most Mets thing in, in recent years? It, I mean, that's a very, very high bar. I know. Uh, but they've had, I mean, if you remember, uh, Noah Syndergaard got a uh, foot and mouth disease, which is something that generally doesn't impact people over the age of six. Yeah. No one's really sure how that one happened. Uh, but the it, getting injured not while playing in the World Baseball Classic, but <laughs> celebrating in the World Baseball Classic is really, like, I'm, I'm going to put the cards on the table here, Rich. I didn't care for it. I don't <laughs> like it. I don't like that it happened. But I did find it kind of gratifying in that it was, like, really creatively as bad a way that it could have gone. And that, you know, there is a, a real Metsy aspect to that. You know, you like to be surprised and delighted by how poorly things are going to go um, in unexpected moments. Are you captivated, injury to Edwin Diaz aside, are you captivated at all by the World Baseball Classic? Weirdly, I find the U.S. team to be less fun to watch than the ones that have been eliminated. I have been watching it. I, you know, have absolutely reverted to college basketball sicko mode. Uh, you know, over the last <laughs> weekend, like everybody else. And so there was, I didn't see a minute of the um, big U.S. romp over Cuba. What I like mostly about watching those games, I think between 
the you know like watching Venezuela against the Dominican Republic was a great time just because the energy is so wild and you could see how much everybody cares and I, the U.S. team does not care like that and I understand why that is I just feel um, that watching them as good as it is it you know I got the whole rest of the summer to watch good baseball players kind of grimly professionally play good baseball against <laughs> each other whereas like the Venezuelan team where there's just like everybody's playing weird pranks on Eduardo Escobar all the time. And there's people in the stands singing all game long. Like that is cool. To me, and that is new. So I, I do like it. I kind of wish that it was happening in July and not in March. Yes. I yeah, I agree. Is my big beat. Yeah. And I understand why it's not, you know, that like the league does not want to pay the insurance or take the risk or whatever. And that's very major league baseball. Them. It's just sort of frustrating. I mean, cause if you look, if, the Premier League can take a you know two week break in the middle, or if the NHL can for the Olympics, which I I don't know if they're back to doing that or not, but like that sort of thing, it's important to the strength of the game. You know, just take a two week All Star break every four years, and I don't think anybody would really miss it one way or the other. All right, let's talk a little basketball. David Roth with us here on Downtown. So much to chat about with the, the NCAA's and March Madness, but I choose to start with this, and it's. It's a question, I guess. When did when did it begin? Was it COVID related when coaches on the sidelines stopped wearing suits and ties? And, and now we've reached the point where uh, John Calipari looks like he's managing a lids at the mall. It's really weird because uh, Calipari is a really good example. Because if you remember, like Bob Huggins has worn suits in his life, mm. but he has also been. Like the way that you might put a tarp over a car, that's kind of how he's dressed for the last 15 years, as far as I remember. It's just like a series of progressively larger and more brightly colored windbreakers with, you know, West Virginia University logo on them. So he, there have been guys that were outliers there. But what struck me, I, I was watching um, Xavier over the weekend, and Sean Miller, very successful coach, uh, also, you know, if you have a pantheon of sweatiest coaches in your mind, like he is an icon in that field. Uh, I don't encourage anybody to do a Google image search for uh, Sean Miller sweats through shirt, but there's some truly unsettling stuff out there. And he was coaching a Xavier game wearing just a zip up, you know, fleece type thing. And while I'm sure he was perspiring freely, he looked normal. It was really bizarre. I had to keep reminding myself that it was actually the guy that uh, looked like he had just been pushed off a boat when he was you know, coaching at Pitt. Uh, it is, I, I miss it to a certain extent. I mean, I think that there's, especially a guy like Tal, or, I mean, who always did, when he, when he dressed, dressed very well. I don't know. Maybe it's just that uh, now that Jay Wright's retired, everybody's just sort of um, leaving it be. And, and, like, well, no one's ever going to touch that. And very few of them look good in their athleisure like Andy Enfield can pull it off at USC he looks pretty good but you know most of these guys are like oh oh come on uh dad's wearing dad's wearing the uh the two small sweats again yeah no there's definitely something to that and I think that what you said about like managing a lids it is definitely not it's not working at like Eric Musselman uh on Arkansas is a great example of this. that man is very physically fit for his age but he looks like somebody who is like, first he's dealing with an unruly customer at a, like, Pep Boys, but then he's becoming the unreasonable one. It's, like, very quickly becoming uh, clear that he has a problem. That is the vibe that he is projecting on the sidelines of those games. And I think maybe it would be different if you were wearing a suit. Maybe that's just mm. some 
inherited cultural bias on our part. But if I see a man in a polo shirt screaming, I'm just going to go the other way. Uh, what is it about these New Jersey schools that uh, they rise to prominence and power here in the month of March? Wow. Yeah, a little institution called Princeton University <laughs> is getting its moment in the sun. <laughs> but I'm also, I know we're talking about Fairleigh Dickinson, too, which is my – that is the closest – Division one school to where I grew up in uh, North Jersey, and it is the sort of school that like is humble enough that everybody that grew up around there had to do like a, you know I ran a like a track meet there. That there have been people that you know like I I did a post about it, and people were saying, oh yeah, like all our debate events were there, or all our you know model UN championships were there. It is just a commuter school near Route 4 in Teaneck, New Jersey, across the way from the batting cage I used to go to as a child that uh, beat Purdue decisively <laughs> and hung around with Florida Atlantic for much longer than I would have thought possible. I have no idea um, what the secret sauce is there other than uh, you know the classic New Jersey aspect of um, hyper-aggressive, shorter men uh, maybe being <laughs> unsettling to teams that aren't accustomed to that. <laughs> And, and I guess in the state of big-time college sports, such as it is, it seems appropriate to me that the way things are shaking out, we might see uh, Murder Incorporated, Alabama, end up as the national champions. Jeez. Yeah, they're, I mean, it was weird. I, I watched them a bit during the SEC tournament, and I knew they were good, and I knew they were very highly ranked. But most of the way that I had encountered them, um, just from working at Defector, is editing stories about what a yutz their coach is yeah. and how poorly he was able to express, like not even like eloquently express, but just correctly express the emotions that you're supposed to project after someone that you work with facilitates a murder of somebody. He's like, he just couldn't seem to, to care. And yet they are really good. And Brandon Miller, who, you know, is not being charged with anything and, you know, but was involved in this is incredibly good. I mean, I think he's probably the best individual player remaining in the tournament, you know, as an NBA prospect. It's just, you know, not very fun to think about it like that. All I did was bring a gun. Is that so wrong? I just brought a gun. That's it. I didn't want to use it. Yeah, I mean, that's a really hard, especially, you know, they, they pretty much have traced all of this stuff back. And it is like, he brought a gun and gave it to somebody else who gave that gun to somebody else, and then something terrible happened, and a 21-year-old woman was killed for no reason. I mean, it's like the sort of deal where like, these sorts of things shouldn't happen in the first place. It definitely seems like one of those things where if there were fewer guns, this is just a bunch of pushing and shoving and yelling, and everybody goes home you know, at the end of the night. But, yeah, it's, it's sort of a hard thing to ignore, and I can't imagine that the NCAA wants – any of that in the the monitors or the conversation if they could avoid it. Uh, speaking of criminals, David, uh, it sure sounds like tomorrow is going to be an exciting day in the city with uh, arrest, indictment, probably not a perp walk, but what whatever is going to happen will happen. What's the mood there in New York City? I mean, it's been strange. I mean, there's been images coming out throughout the day of their kind of hardening the security around the courthouses downtown and stuff like that. I sort of have a difficult time imagining it, just in the sense that the whole of the Trump mystique is the idea that he never gets in trouble for anything. Mm. He never even has to go to court. Like, he's giving depositions 200 days a year, all the various lawsuits that he's involved in. 
but it never really matters, you know. And in this instance, this particular case, you know, bizarrely is like the Stormy Daniels hush money thing. And it's a very sort of creative bit of prosecution. And I think of all the things that he could get indicted for, get into any kind of trouble over, this is like not in my top 100. Mm. You know, it's not legal. It's not great. I mean, but it is for a guy that sheds uh, highly prosecutable actions the way that, you know, people with dandruff shed dandruff. <laughs> it's kind of weird that this is the thing that they're latching onto. I'm sure that he's going to be really weird about it. And I'm going to go ahead and touch wood as I say this. I don't think that there's going to be any sort of real, you know, civil disobedience here in the city, if only because of this is, you know, being where, where it's happening. But there's like, there's plenty of proud boys around that, you know, we're surrounded by, you know, Long Island and New Jersey having a lot of uh, that sort of, you know, hardcore Trumpist people in it. And yet, like, all of those people have been mainlining crappy news about how New York City is actually the way it was during the Death Wish sequels. And I think eventually they're just going to choose to stay home and post. That's my hope. I think you're right. And, and I also think that outside of the outside of the people who've built their career on, on the imitation of Trump and Trump loss, the, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Matt Gates, Jim Jordans of the world, I, I got to think most of what we, we used to believe were somewhat legitimate Republican politicians are huddled around somewhere hoping that they lock this guy up and, and just get him off the stage so they don't have to issue any more completely disingenuous disingenuous pronouncements about how he's being untreated uh, treated unfairly by our legal system. And it's all the, the liberals out to get him because they want him gone. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I think that to a certain extent, they have... You know, it's one of those classic sort of having the wolf by the ears sort of scenarios. Like they, for the first time, you know, have this politician in their party that, uh, you know, not a majority, but a large percentage of, you know, the American electorate cares about deeply. And that's never been the case. I mean, it wasn't the sort of thing. Nobody was going to, you know, head to the barricades for Mitt Romney. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so in this case, they have that, but he's completely erratic and sloppy and he's getting more so and the and because of just the nature of Trump being Trump that there's there's no way that you could have just a little bit of him you can't have a story that involves him and is not dominated by him you can't have a party that he leads that doesn't ultimately come to serve him and only him because he doesn't have any other interests and he doesn't have any other ambitions and i think as a party they you know, the Republicans can't really say what their policies are um, out loud because people hate them. They're like right. some of the most unpopular <laughs> ideas basically devised in human history. So if you can't say uh, we need to make it harder for kids to get lunch at school and also corporations shouldn't have to pay taxes, what you're left with is they're being very mean to the guy from TV that you like. It's just that's not really a winning thing either. And if the guy from TV that you like – uh, sucks and 60% of the population <laughs> wants him in jail or under the jail, then, yeah, you're obviously sort of stuck in this situation where you have one option, you know, of what you can talk about, and it's not good. And I, I maybe I'm overly optimistic here, but I, I feel like Trump's last act on the political stage 
as all of this begins to squeeze him a little bit tighter with this just being the opening act of, of what's likely to come. I, I'm convinced his his final gift to the Republican Party is to take down Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I think he's going to have a great time doing it. I think that's something that he's really cut out for, like uniquely well, just in the sense that they're both they're very similar. I mean, DeSantis has like gone to the so far as to like adopt the same sort of gestures and diction, and so he's like doing a, a Trump imitation in the way that for a brief while, Democratic politicians, you know, otherwise normal looking Yaley white guys would speak with like Barack Obama's cadence and be like, well, what, what are you doing? But DeSantis is, he's, in order to get away with the stuff that Trump gets away with, you have to already be famous and you have to be sort of comfortable performing a version of yourself on television. And DeSantis is not a very good performer. No. And I don't think that there's, so what he has are the ideas, you know, these unpopular ideas. Uh, and he's put them, you know, into effect. I don't think that you can necessarily look at you know, taking books out of school libraries and uh, making an administrator inspect teenagers' genitals before uh, a 100-meter hurdles race. These are not winning ideas on a national stage, but that's what he's got. He's actually done the stuff. Whereas for Trump, I mean, if it's like in a campaign against DeSantis, all you need to do is be like, look at this weirdo. Like, look at how short he is. Look at his, like, strange hair. That's Trump's forte. He's not going to win a policy debate against anybody, but he's like in the way of any, you know, uh, weird, prissy country club gossip. Like, I think he's pretty good with his snaps. <laughs> well, I look forward to watching it all play out. Uh, good luck. Hope it's a peaceful day in New York City tomorrow and uh, all, all plays out uh, strictly by the book. And I don't think yeah. we'll get a perp walk or anything like that, but I would take even a mugshot. Yeah, sure. Any right. I think, <laughs> right. If you don't get the jumpsuit, at the very least, I want to see him uh, in profile. He doesn't like that angle. <laughs> right, not his good side. <laughs> thanks very much, Rich. I appreciate it. Have a good one, man. It's David Roth with us on Downtown, the podcast. Our thanks to David. Thanks to the great Tom Rush and to you for checking in with us this week. We'll see you next time around. Uh, for Kerry Haskell, Rich Kimball here. Downtown brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.